I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part three in the series, Season of the Spirit, Season of the Flesh. A spiritual exercise to accompany this teaching can be found at vancity.church slash season of the spirit. Joy is not a word that seems to accurately describe the world right now. And yet the early church, though constantly navigating suffering, persecution, and poverty, wrote consistently about the role of joy in the disciples' apprenticeship. What does it mean to resist the acrimony of a world in crisis with the rebelliousness of joy? If you have a Bible on you, go ahead and open to Galatians chapter 5, the passage we read already. In this strange interim, it's not quite a Sunday gathering, we realize that. It's also not quite a community meeting. It's some kind of weird hybrid of both things. We're embarking on a kind of training camp. That's how I phrased it in the first of these teachings. The world is in crisis, and the crisis isn't letting up. So our hope is to deliberately seize this period as an opportunity for unique spiritual formation and to make use of it in a way that we wouldn't normally if everything was as it normally is. So our passage is here in Galatians 5. Look down and let's just read a tiny bit from verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy. In 2017, an English punk rock outfit called Idols began work on their second album. The time between the debut album and the sophomore effort had been a season of suffering for the gentlemen in this band, marked by tragedy and addiction and death. And yet, when the album was released in late summer of 2018, the record's cover was inscribed with three big gold letters, defiant and unironic, joy. The record is called Joy as an Act of Resistance. The band's vocalist, Joe Talbot, talked about the way a period of darkness gave way to a project centered on the idea of joyfulness. He said, I was in counseling and I had to get over my addiction and my grief and I had to save my relationships around me. So it was important that I use joy as an act of resistance in my own life way before I wrote about it. So this whole album was built around this ethos and the practice of joy as an act of resistance. There's this strange story in the 14th chapter of Acts in which Paul, who's a master apprentice of Jesus, he went on to write most of the New Testament, he restores the legs of a man who could not walk previously. People see this incredible thing happen, and they are understandably surprised and elated, and they are compelled to worship Paul and his friend Barnabas, who's with him, and they start calling them Zeus and Hermes, even going as far as attempting to offer sacrifices to them. So dismayed by this, Paul and Barnabas plead with the people saying, friends, why are you doing this, trying to worship us and sacrifice to us? We too are only human like you. We're bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things, false gods and idols, to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. In the past, he let all nations go their own way, yet he has not left himself without testimony. How? He's shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven, crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. 
It's a weird story. There's lots of peripheral stuff we don't have time for. But look at this. As an argument for the reality, the existence, the trustworthiness of the one true God, Paul and Barnabas insist that God is the one who's good and faithful, who provides. God is the one who fills your hearts with joy, whether you know him or not. Very few people would describe 2020 as the year of joy. Even if they've had a decent enough time, only a sociopath or a solipsist would overlook the storm of chaos and confusion that has branded much of the year to date. And the world, I think, does not have, shall we say, a real paradigm for joy. On the first evening of this, the the season of the spirit and the season of the flesh, we argued that there are, in the worldview of the New Testament, two basic survival mechanisms for navigating life in the world. According to the Bible, there's life apart from God, what early followers of Jesus called the flesh. And then there's life propelled by the resources and empowerment of God's Holy Spirit. There's the flesh and there's the spirit. Since much of the world opts for life apart from God or the flesh, and since life apart from God rejects the resources of God's spirit, which includes, namely, joy, the person who operates in the flesh is either unwilling or uninterested in joy as divine impartation of the creator God. And so what much of the world is either pursuing relentlessly or settling for is not joy, but happiness or comfort or contentment. There's nothing wrong with those things per se, but our culture defines happiness as getting what you want. And maybe that sounds bad when you put it that way, but I don't mean to mock it, at least not yet anyway. It it actually makes a ton of sense. We don't always want awful things. Sometimes what we want is practical or healthy or good, and getting those things makes us happy. That makes a lot of sense. But the problem is when we only want what we want Because often what's best is not what we want. Often what's best is uncomfortable or difficult or painful or costly. And when we navigate the hard knocks of life, we are rarely happy in the superficial sense anyway. We want pleasure, not joy. Last week I read from 2 Timothy the way one New Testament author describes the terrible times of the last days, he says. Not with an apocalyptic vision of war and microchips and the Antichrist, but with selfish people. Look at this. He says, mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. How? People will be lovers of themselves. Lovers of money. Boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Having a form of godliness but denying its power have nothing to do with such people. The terrible times of the last days are as Timothy predicted, marked by people who are lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. There's a dichotomy between those two things. That's not the only place in the New Testament that describes that dichotomy. In Titus 3, we read, At one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. Now, rarely do we associate being passionate or enjoying pleasure as foolish or disobedient or as enslaving. 
popular Christianity has attempted to float this idea that happiness is impossible apart from God, which seems ridiculous. Not even the Bible is so bold. In fact, the Hebrew scriptures and on into the New Testament, uh, one of the near constant laments of righteous men and women is that evil or arrogant or unbelieving people are often not only happy, but prosperous. Things go really well for them. From a young age, I was marketed this idea of a God who is the only real way to happiness in the world. But the Bible concedes that embracing and living the way of selfishness can make one happy when it works, that is. When you get what you want, but not everyone is so lucky. Look at this lament from Psalm 73. As for me, my feet almost slipped. I'd nearly lost my foothold for I envied the arrogant when I saw their prosperity, the prosperity of the wicked, wicked, the wicked. Wow, that was for you guys on the online feed. The wicked, you can say it like that from now on if you like. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They're free from common human burdens. They're not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff and speak with malice, with arrogance. They threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven. Their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? That sounds familiar in the political landscape of America in 2020. Selfishness. The Bible often admits can prosper and make glad the enfeebled hearts of man. But the catch is that it is a fragile happiness indeed. If we admit that happiness can be squeezed from pleasure, from getting what we want, we must also concede that said happiness is inevitably and inherently temporary. It's transient, it's unpredictable, and ultimately fleeting. The pandemic has shown this to be true. Look at the way that the stripping away of simple pleasures has brought out the worst in so many people. An already hostile social landscape often seems a nightmare world of petty fighting and cruel, unfeeling brutality triggered by the erasure of simple conveniences. We didn't know that we were heading for a crisis. The passenger facilities aboard the Titanic were designed in the early 1900s to meet the highest possible standards of luxury at the time. To name just a few amenities, there was, I learned this week, a saltwater swimming pool, a gym, a squash court. There was an early tanning bed, which was called an electric bath at the time, which sounds like a great way to die. Um, there was a steam room, a cool room, a massage room, a sauna, and the rooms, the, the residence, or I don't know what you call them, like the guest rooms, they were huge and lavishly decorated. There was an a la carte restaurant based on the Ritz Hotel, which was run by a famous Italian restaurateur. It was a luxury cruise designed to make its passengers happy. They didn't put all that stuff there to make you miserable. Of course, we now know that what they did not know then, that the Titanic's maiden voyage was doomed. It would never arrive at its New York destination, and it settled instead in the freezing ocean, ending the lives of more than half of the 2,200-plus passengers aboard. But we think that the passengers went on partying right until they collided with the fateful iceberg. They didn't know it was coming, and their ignorance sustained their enjoyment of the short and ill-fated journey. All of us are, in many ways, aboard the Titanic. An iceberg is coming, maybe several. 
The icebergs are trauma or suffering or hardship or crisis or death. And the flesh, that operating system based on coping mechanisms for life apart from God, the flesh can only keep everyone dancing until the boat hits the ice. It is a happiness contingent on the amenities, getting what we want, pleasure. It's wildly disappointing because it can't be sustained and it relies entirely on factors beyond our control. Joy in the Bible is something else entirely. Pastor and author John Tyson, whose work inspired this series, summarizes the Bible's paradigm for joy this way. He says, Christian joy is a good feeling in the soul produced by the Holy Spirit as he causes us to see the beauty of God in the word and in the world. It enables us to respond to external circumstances with inner contentment and satisfaction because we know that God will use these experiences to accomplish his work in and through our lives. It, joy, anticipates a glorious future of salvation and restoration. Joy is an internal reality, meaning it is, in some sense, what it sounds like, a good feeling in the soul. But it's more than that. Joy is produced by the Holy Spirit. It is not the side effect of pleasure or satisfaction. It is an outgrowth of life with God. Remember, the fruit of the Spirit, as we read at the beginning, is joy. Since joy comes from and through God, it often feels counterintuitive. Our minds and our hearts are broken and bent, and so it's easy for us to imagine being made glad by frivolities or even being satisfied by things that we know are not good. But it's often hard for us to grasp and believe that drawing near to God and embracing the things of Jesus, even when they're very difficult, will bring us joy. And so God becomes like vegetables to a child or exercise to the slothful. We don't want what's good for us. We want what's bad for us. So the pursuit of joy for the apprentice of Jesus must take the shape of disciplined resolve. We know and believe what often contradicts our felt experience, that we often want what will not bring us joy, but that to know and to contemplate and pursue God will bring us joy, even when that is difficult and even when it's painful. God is the source, the origin point of joy. God, God is joyful. In fact, God is the most joyful being in the universe. He has joy to give, contagious joy. He has gifts of joy that he freely distributes to his children who also bring him joy. C.S. Lewis described God as a fountain of joy and beauty which cannot help but pour over and drench those who come near it. God, he said, it's not like he monitors a locked cabinet and he occasionally distributes prizes of joy and goodness to those he deems deserving. God is the source, the origin point of joy and goodness. And when we come near to him, we become saturated in the reality of his joy and power and peace and life. The internal reality of joy comes from God. It is produced in us by his spirit and it looks forward beyond the iceberg to a glorious future. In the heart and soul and mind of those who follow Jesus, the ICC is never the ending. Hope and redemption 
will have the final word. And notice that doesn't mean that we never experience any grief or pain or frustration. Of course we do. But when we regularly draw near to God and have been saturated with his joy and hope, our pain is not the greatest thing before us because we are learning to see beyond it. And then joy can mysteriously and beautifully coexist with sadness and suffering and grief. Joy doesn't eliminate hardship. We will suffer. But true joy is a lamp that burns through the dark night of despair. I do not believe that you can, as the ubiquitous wall art seems to suggest, choose joy. As if simply wanting to feel joy is some switch you can flip on. You are not in unilateral control of how you feel But you can choose what you do about your thinking and feeling. You cannot simply choose to be joyful, but you can choose to embrace the lifestyle of Jesus one day, one gesture, one thought at a time, keeping in step with the Spirit of God. And the fruit of that effort is joy. We have collectively hit an iceberg. If it isn't the pandemic, it's the reaction to it, or it's the lockdown and quarantine, or it's the uncertainty and the ambiguity of it all. And whether or not you're sick or suffering from the economic fallout, all of us are feeling something, even if we don't realize it yet. I read this week that some health professionals have suggested that the negative effects of lockdown and quarantine are akin to having smoked 15 cigarettes a day, that it has created a new wave of depression and poor sleeping habits, impaired executive function, accelerated cognitive decline, poor cardiovascular function, and impaired immunity at every stage of life. Maybe it doesn't feel quite so dire for you at the moment. It doesn't for me, honestly. But you and I are being surrounded on all sides by a world in a unique kind of ongoing turmoil. And like it or not, it affects all of us. Think about the ways that the early days of quarantine became an argument about time management. It felt like only a moment had passed. Week into that first, you know, they were like, oh, we're going to shut everything down for two weeks. Remember that? Two weeks! Oh my God, how are we going to live? And that first two weeks, um, it felt like a minute went by and then people started bickering about productivity or lack thereof. And some people were saying, hey, let's make the most of this unwanted free time that many of us have found spilled in our laps. And others gasped, how dare you pressure us to be productive in this time of chaos and despair? And either way, the admission was, we don't know what to do with any of this. And that's often the case when suffering or crisis, or trauma arrives in life unexpectedly, but we can make a decision to train in the ways of joy. John Tyson described the effort as learning to harmonize our will with God's will. All of life for the disciple of Jesus is a journey in what we call spiritual formation. We are, over time, becoming someone else, But crisis and suffering are unique opportunities to be spiritually formed in ways that the ordinary ebb and flow of life and time simply do not offer. The opportunity for formation is a gift. Now notice, I did not say that crisis and suffering are gifts in and of themselves, as if they're engineered by God and that they always happen for a reason and the reason is to do you good. They aren't and they don't. But the opportunity 
to be formed by crisis and suffering is a gift. James says it this way, Consider it pure joy, brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Don't miss the exquisite subtleties of the language. Consider suffering pure joy. It isn't pure joy, but learn to understand it as such. It's about training in the ways of joy. And why? What's at stake? Why should we learn to do that? James says that you, may be, that you might be mature and complete, not lacking anything. I want that. I'm sure I can't be alone in that. But it's often a struggle to pull something like that off. In fact, we see this struggle well represented in the life of Jesus. And it unfolds in this kind of defiant cycle. It looks something like this. The rigors of reality force us into the struggle against our circumstances. And we have only two options. The options are surrender our grasping superficial happiness in exchange for God's deeper joy, or don't. If we do surrender, then we learn to walk in resolve, out of which grows the deeper joy of God's Spirit. You will, all of you, set before yourself a great many things in the week ahead. You will populate your time and your mental real estate with many things. And chances are many of us have devoted more of or most of our time to the kinds of things that will not cultivate joy. Of course, this doesn't mean that you can't do anything unless it's with the express purpose of cultivating God's joy. That's not realistic. But it is worth asking, do I dedicate more time to the consideration and contemplation of the things of Jesus or to my smartphone? And it's not just food for thought. That's a question with an objective answer. You can look at your screen time report, but most of you don't really need to. You know right now where you sit, what the answer is. Have you made a deliberate and disciplined effort to make room for the Spirit of God in the reading of scriptures and in prayer and worship and contemplation? Or have you made more room for television? A while back, my community was having an honest conversation about making space for spiritual discipline and someone in vulnerability admitted to something very human and near universal when they said, man, I'm just very selfish with my time. I want to do what I want to do, they said. Something with which all of us can relate. I know I can. But we can also relate to this strange human phenomenon of realizing that what we know is best is not always what we want to do, at least not in an immediate superficial sense, like diet and exercise or therapy or budgeting or scheduling. We understand that there are things that will do us good. We understand there are things that will make us feel better ultimately or that will make us more happy more mature more adjusted but that we often don't want to do for one reason or another the way that we want to do other things like zone out or scroll through a feed or sleep in or retreat or flake out of things things that we know won't do us good won't make us feel better won't mature us but we want to do them anyway but you are more than your superficial desire and you have been given an advantage 
in this conflict. The Spirit of God, which is a wellspring of power within, can energize the atrophied heart and reward very little with a sweet taste of real hope and real joy. Meaning, you can begin to choose routines and rhythms that will numb you and draw you backward in the muck and undertow of the world and superficial pleasantries. Most of us do that by default. It's just a basic operating mode of life in the world. The flesh chooses them for you. But you can move upstream one moment at a time, defiant in your pursuit of joy, and you can choose routines and rhythms and moments and thoughts and practices that when we make it through to the other side of this mess, we will find that we have become more mature and more complete. Earlier I talked about an album called Joy as an Act of Resistance, about the way that the band Idols was looking for joy in a dark season. And I was struck by exactly how deep the sorrow goes. On the record, there's a song called June, and it features these simple, gut-wrenching lyrics. Dreams can be so cruel sometimes. I swear I kissed your crying eyes. A stillborn was still born. I am a father. Baby shoes for sale, never worn. Pretend, amend, amen. So there are inconveniences on the road of life. There are trials. But then there is real agony of the soul. And training in the ways of defiant joy is not just a good idea to get us through an inconvenient time. It is necessary for life in the kingdom of God. Because if it isn't this iceberg, the pandemic and the quarantine and the civil unrest, it will be another one. Disciples of Jesus are not doomsday preppers. We're not stocking sellers with canned goods and fretful paranoia over a future that we can't possibly control. We are training ourselves to be warmed by the steady flicker of joy when the rain inevitably comes and when the long winter sets in. We do not chase after a disingenuous and emotionally dishonest, always happy in Jesus, no matter what outlook on life. We know we will hurt, and we know we will hurt sincerely. But the joy of the Spirit is not a mask over our pain. It's not denial nor wishful thinking. The joy of the Spirit is a disciplined resolve that steps into God's presence to be bathed in the generous overflow of His joy within and direct our breaking hearts to the good future He promises. Thanks for listening to Vance City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Vance City financially at vancity.church/give.